for a, a few seconds there as we started to sing, I felt like an old 1950s race car driver because uh, my pit crew held up a sign like this right in front of me and said, Father's Day gifts. Oh, right, forgot. At the back table there on the, uh, the very manly yellow uh, tablecloth, there is a big basket of gifts uh, for all the fathers, and they are for all the, all the men in general, yes. Uh, Father or not, please go help yourself. And uh, the bad news is if you don't take them all, they sit in the cupboard right below the coffee, and somebody who works here week after week goes to make a coffee, and temptation rears its ugly head. And the, the little chocolates get sweeter and better tasting and better looking as time goes by. So please take them all with you. I don't need the help. Uh, please open your Bibles this morning to uh, Acts chapter 22. Acts 22, we've been away from this for a couple of weeks, and we want to pick it up again. Acts 22, and we're going to read from verse 21 uh, all the way to chapter 23 and verse number 11. And just to give you the context, uh, in Acts 22, uh, Paul has been, or in Acts 21, I guess it was, Paul was in the temple minding his own business. Somebody saw him and remembered he had been with some Gentiles earlier in the week in Jerusalem, made the massive leap and assumption that he brought Gentiles into the temple. They grab Paul, they start shouting and shouting and waving and and all upset, and they drag him out of the temple, assuming that he's brought a Gentile into the forbidden areas of the temple courts, and they're giving him a good pummeling outside the temple doors. And the Romans, uh, who are close by in the barracks of a place called the Fortress of Antonia, see what's going on. Oh no, another riot. They go running down there. They stop Paul from being beaten up, immediately commanded me to be chained up to two soldiers, which was strictly speaking illegal, and we'll see that in a second. And uh, he's rescued from the beating, and they're going to drag him away, and the Jews are all upset. And so Paul turns and asks to the, to the uh, commander, a guy named Claudius Lysias, and says, may I have permission to speak to you? And then he asks permission to speak to the Jews. He gives a long explanation about his life, and he hits this point, and he's talked about uh, the Lord Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus, and they don't seem to be too upset about that. And then he hits this point in verse 21, and Paul's speaking, and he says, He, meaning God, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the, the last straw hit the Jews back, and everybody got really upset. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered that he be brought into the barracks, saying that he was to be interrogated by flogging so that he would find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. When they stretched him out with straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And the commander heard this. He went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. Commander answered, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. And therefore, those who are about to interrogate him immediately backed away from him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Now, on the next day, 
Wanting to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble. And he brought Paul down and placed him before them. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Now looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life with an entirely good conscience before God up to this day. But the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law in violation of a law order me to be struck? But those present said, are you insulting God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he is a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But Paul, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, began crying out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dissension occurred between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees sorry, say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And a great uproar occurred, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and started arguing heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And when a great dissension occurred, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered his troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the following night, The Lord stood near him and said, Be courageous, for as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And we give thanks for the reading of God's word. Let's just ask again for God's help. Well, God, again, we come before you and we give thanks for your word. Give thanks, Father, that every single word is inspired by you. It's profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction, for training in righteousness that we, the people of God, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Father, again now, as we would look to the Scriptures, we pray, O oh God, that you would speak, that my voice would fall silent at the edge of the pulpit, but your voice would speak to every heart. And we ask these things simply in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I've been reading the narrative back and forth, I read every day the passage I'm going to preach on, and usually a little bit beyond that. Uh, what struck me about this narrative of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem through all these events to the end of the book is Paul seems to be marvelously at peace in the midst of chaos going on all around him. His zealous yet unbelieving Jewish countrymen are shouting and shoving and starting riots and throwing dust in the air and calling, demanding his death. The Romans and their flog-first, ask-questions-later approach to fact-finding, the shouting and arguing of Sadducees with Pharisees, and in the midst of it all, there's Paul. Aside from one sharp comment to the high priest, he seems almost unaffected by it. What would you do if you were in Paul's shoes? All the people of your nation, imagine all the people of Melbourne, standing there shouting for your death, grabbing handfuls of dust and throwing them in the air is their way of saying, let's stone him. And he just seems to be standing there at peace, calm. I believe what's sustaining him through all this is the reassurance 
from the Lord, that this is all part of God's providential plan and purpose from him, from his conversion to the very end of his life at the business end of a Roman sword, for we know he died by beheading. And through our text and our passage, as I read through again and again and again, some verses just kind of stood out to me, struck me as quite significant. In 23 and verse 1, he says this, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to that day, this day. I stood out. In Acts 21 verse 33, Paul's quiet submission to the Romans unlawfully binding him. In Acts 21, 37 to 40, Paul's first seeking permission to speak. In verses 25 to 28, Paul's quiet, gentle way of making known his citizenship by simply asking a question. I think if I was being stretched out and tied up with leather ropes and the guy was shaking out the scourge to open up my back like a, something you can't imagine, the closest thing I think of is taking barbed wire and whipping someone with it. I think I would have been more than just asking a gentle question. I would have been screaming and shouting for a lawyer and all the rest of it. It's quiet. In Acts 23, in verse 6, Paul's cry, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. That stood out to me. So as you look at the two stories and how they fit together, you have to ask the question, what is the text talking about? Luke's narrative of events outside the temple and inside the Roman barracks describes Paul's relating and responding to authorities. First, Paul relates to God with a clear conscience. That's a compelling point. Secondly, Paul relates to Rome and the Romans with a humble submission. And thirdly, Paul relates to his Jewish brothers with grace and truth and boldness. He keeps a clear conscience even when talking with them. And we all, we all need these timeless truths of Scripture because we must all relate to the Lord our God as either our Savior or our Judge. We must all relate to the state authorities that God has placed over us. And as believers, we must relate to unbelievers who are rejecting the gospel, hating Christ, and even hating us. How do we respond to them? How do we relate? This humble, spiritful man of God provides an amazing example to follow. So let's first look at what he says about relating to God with a clear conscience. Notice 23 and verse 1 again. Brethren, I have lived my life with a a perfectly good conscience before God to this day, up to this day. What is a conscience? I mean, some of us, we think of conscience, and what do we think of? A little tiny cricket with a top hat and tailcoats, right? You know, the cartoon movie about Pinocchio. That's the idea of a conscience. Comes and goes, can be shut up and all the rest of it. That's not quite it at all. A conscience is our God-given faculty to discern between right and wrong. Our conscience is literally, the word means our self-knowledge, our understanding of our actions, our motives, our words, through the moral compass provided by God. Our conscience operates according to the law of God written on our hearts. The Bible says, Paul wrote, Romans 2 verses 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these 
are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So the normal function of our conscience is to distinguish between right and wrong. Our God-given conscience serves with a relentless inner voice, doesn't it? You do something wrong and what happens? You just can't shut that little voice inside off. You know what you did. You've got to deal with that. You've got to put that right. You're going to get caught. We don't have peace because our conscience never stops talking. Our conscience is our God-given faculty. It serves with a relentless voice speaking against wrong actions and warning and accusing and convicting us. It speaks for the right actions, encouraging and defending and approving the right actions. Our conscience is informed through the intellect, through our minds. What a good reason for godly, Christian, Bible-saturated, bring up of your kids, sending them to school, training them and informing them of the Scriptures. Because as you feed the Scriptures in their little lives, little hearts, you are informing their conscience to be able to respond to God's Word and God's will better. You're setting them up as they come to know Christ. No, just doing that won't guarantee it. They still have to be brought to Christ by a work of God. But you're setting them up so that they will understand right and wrong. Never worry about a child with a sharp conscience. That's a good thing. It's a great reason to teach the Bible to your kids, to teach them catechism or take them to Sunday school, to encourage them to sit and listen in worship and preaching services. It's why we oldies, I did say we, we oldies need to be constantly in the Word. It informs our conscience. It helps us understand right and wrong. Saturation of Scripture and sound teaching informs our conscience. Conscience can be weakened. Almost into silence if we ignore and act against it. There's a uh, John Bunyan. You all know who John Bunyan is, right? The Pilgrim's Progress guy. He wrote a dozen, or no, about 50 other books too. He wrote one called The Holy War. I remember the name of it. And it's a story of a city. And he uses a city and all of its occupants to kind of demonstrate the faculty of a man who comes to faith in Christ. And there's a, there's a, a conscience character in there. And as sin grows in this city's life, the people of the city put this conscience in a jail. And he keeps going to the window and shouting out as loud as he can. But the, he makes the point that as longer he shouts and the more the city commits sin, the less and less and less and quieter his voice seems to be. That's what happens to our conscience. It can be weakened and almost into silence if we ignore and don't act according to it. Our conscience can be misinformed through erroneous teaching and reasoning, but our conscience cannot be destroyed as its accusations will form part of the torments of those in hell who reject God's offer of forgiveness and salvation and a cleansed conscience. Conscience itself shows up first in Genesis chapter 3. Eve, as she's staying there and the, and the serpent's talking to her, she heard and knew that they weren't to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She repeats it back. The moment they disobeyed God's word and ate the forbidden fruit, their eyes of their heart, not these eyes, the eyes of their hearts were opened. They knew that they were naked. They were ashamed, the Bible says, hiding themselves among the trees. 
That first experience of shame is a result of their conscience accusing them of their sin before God. Their sin against God. And brothers and sisters, my friends, we've all inherited a God-given conscience, that inner voice that testifies to us. And as we commit sin, we develop a guilty conscience that accuses and condemns us. Every sin we commit increases our guilt, and until that sin is fully dealt with and forgiveness is received from God, we'll never know the freedom for those, con- those accusations. And there's nothing we can do to make up for those wrongs. The guilt remains. All our added works of righteousness cannot remove the guilty feeling we have. You can't drown out the voice of conscience by all sorts of good works and good deeds, running around doing this, that, and the other thing. All our sacrifices we could make to all the worthy causes in the world cannot remove our guilty feeling, our guilty conscience, because fundamentally our sinful thoughts And words and actions for which our conscience relentlessly accuses us, they're all committed against God first and foremost. It's God's law written on our hearts. It's the basis on which our conscience accuses us, and the law must be satisfied. And you think, if that's the end of the story, we're all doomed. But it's not the end of the story, is it? We all know that. The good news is that God and God alone can reach down and remove the guilt and satisfy our conscience so that nothing remains to accuse us. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 verses 13 and 14, speaking of the difference between Old Testament animal sacrifices and Jesus' offering of himself once for all says this, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Our guilty conscience can only be cleansed by Christ's blood. And you say, how is that possible? He died 2,000 years ago. Works like this. We hear the good news of God's forgiveness and salvation. We hear and we know and understand that God being absolutely holy cannot tolerate sin. We hear and we know that all, we're all sinners. Don't think if you come to church for the first time that we're a bunch of goody two-shoes and we're better than everybody else. The only difference between us, and and if you've never been here before, is simply this. We know we're sinners. We know we have no hope apart from God. We're just like you. We've all sinned before God. We've all failed to glorify God in everything that we do. And we all deserve death. Then we hear the good news that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to suffer, to die, to pay the penalty for our sin. We hear that God raised him to life from the dead. We hear that God has accepted his death as sufficient to pay for all our sin. And we hear the call of God to come. And because we cannot come on our own, God does an amazing work in our hearts to incline us to come, to empower us to come. And we feel in our hearts that longing to come. We believe the message of the gospel. We turn away from sin. We start acting according to our conscience, and we turn towards God in faith. 
and we trust in Jesus to save us and our conscience is cleansed by the work of God within our hearts. How great is our God. So many I've talked to who come to faith in Christ describe a sense of amazing what? Peace. I'll never forget it. The moment I trusted Christ, I just knew everything was okay. That nagging feeling that I had been fighting with for over a year, that there was something wrong. I knew I had to come to Christ. I knew I needed forgiveness of sin. I knew I needed to be saved from the wrath of God. And the moment I trusted Christ, it was like all that accusation, gone. My friend, if you don't have peace in your heart, if you're wrestling with a guilty conscience, it's a sure evidence that you're not truly saved. It's a sure evidence that you need to come to God to be cleansed from sin, to be forgiven, for your conscience to be washed clean. And when it's washed clean, it's like it takes all those accusations and they're removed, they're gone. And there's peace within So Paul is making a tremendous statement to these Jews and Romans. Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Paul knows God's forgiveness of his sin through Christ's blood. And Paul has also maintained a clear, clean conscience before God. Seeking forgiveness for sin as soon as he realized that we're going to see that right in this passage. Yes, even Paul, the great Paul, sinned. After he came to faith in Christ, just like all of us do. It's not if we sin after we're saved. It's when we sin that we deal with it properly. And Paul does exactly that. Paul has a clear conscience before God because he has obeyed God. God called him to be an apostle and he obeyed. And you can see it all through the epistles in the the book of Acts. In Acts 22, God sent him far away to the Gentiles. That was a huge point for them, the Jews. They were God's special people removed. And here God is sending him to the Gentiles, and yet he obeys. This is the reason, the flashpoint, why the Jews are so angry at him, because he's claiming to obey God and go to the Gentiles. That was absolutely forbidden as far as they were concerned. He has a clear conscience because he's obeyed God's call and God's command. Paul has lived his Christian life in obedient submission to God's will. He's gone to the Gentiles as God commanded. You can see that in Acts 13, 46, and Paul and Barnabas turn to the Gentiles. In Acts 15, verse 12, Paul relates his work among the Gentiles. In Romans 15, verses 15 and 16, it's God's grace to Paul to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. His arrival in Jerusalem with eight Gentile Christians coming along with him, as we saw a couple months ago, it was all proof of his claim of a clear conscience before God. So you take that and say, well, what's the point for us? I mean, that's nice to know about what Paul was doing, but we're here. how How does this apply to us? The reality is we can only relate to God on the basis of a cleansed conscience. We are all born equipped with a God-given conscience. It accuses or excuses us based on our obedience to it. Every sin we commit renders our conscience guilty before God and our conscience accuses us. But only God can forgive sin and cleanse that conscience. 
The only way God can forgive your sin and mine is if the perfect accepted payment for our sin, Christ's blood and death, is applied to us. And it's applied by faith. We trust the promise that God made. And my question to you this morning as you sit here in this room is, has your conscience been cleansed by God? Do you have that peace within? If not, the the message is so simple. A little child can understand it. Come to God. Come to Christ and ask him for forgiveness and cleansing of your life based on what Jesus has done for you. And you'll have that peace. So simple. Christian, what are we doing to maintain a clear conscience before God? Are we living in obedience or disobedience to God and Scripture? And if it's disobedience, I assure you, your conscience will immediately poke it and let you know where it is. If you've lost that peace and joy before God because of a guilty conscience, the answer is the same. Come to Christ, confess that sin, seek His forgiveness, and seek for His restoration of that peace within that testifies to forgiveness. It's yours if we would ask for it. Well, that's Paul's conscience. Secondly, I want you to notice his relationship to the government with a humble submission. First and most important relationship we have is with God. The next one is that we're all engaged in is with our government. We're all living underneath governments. Remember a couple of things. God is always in control over all his creatures. He rules over all the nations of the world and the earth. The Bible says, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 6, Jehoshaphat prayed, O Lord, The God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might in your hand so that no one can stand against you. God rules over the nations. Proverbs, uh, sorry, Psalm 66, verse 5. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the Son of Men. In verse 7, he rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. God sees all the nations are doing. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 4 of Romans 13, for the authority is a minister of God to you for good. God has established governments for the benefit of all humanity. You say, wait a minute, we know some of the governments around here, and they don't seem to be doing a whole lot of good toward us. You're right. God established them for good. God rules over them. God will hold them accountable for how they're governing and behaving It was God's purpose in that. And the question we have, and we saw it raised over and over again, all through the COVID stuff, right? How do we respond to the government? How do we respond to rules that we don't like or we don't agree with? And Paul gives us a striking, almost shocking example of how we respond to ungodly governments. Paul was, as we saw, a citizen of Rome. Roman citizenship can be gained several ways, by birth to Roman parents, or at least a Roman mother, retirement from the army, by purchase. Claudius Lysias says, I purchased my uh, citizenship. 
Citizenship can be proven by family and social connections. It wasn't uh, who, what you knew, it was who you knew. If you had enough friends in the right places that would say, yes, yes, he is a citizen of Rome, that was proof. Uh, census was taken every five years. They also had little uh, certificates, they're both that size, kind of roughly, a piece of wood. It had wax on one side, and it had the name of seven witnesses. So if uh, Victor would pull his out, seven of us would sign and say, yes, Victor is a citizen of Canada or wherever, Australia, whichever place this is. And then they would sign across the bottom a little inscription in Latin that said he was a citizen of Rome, in this case. They often carried those. Roman citizens had rights, like we as citizens have rights, right of freedom, not to be arrested, beaten, or executed without a proper trial. They could not be chained up. You catch that part? Is it lawful for you guys to rob, uh, flog citizens as he's been stretched out? I, I, my sense of comedy just can't help laughing at that moment, right? Guys, I just had a thought. Why are you about to flog me? Is this lawful? I'm a citizen. It's not, not what he actually says, but he's making that point. He was not to be chained without proper trial and process. And when they discover he's born a citizen, you know what they do? They all immediately back up. And you see these poor Roman citizens dropping the chains. I wasn't touching them. Were you touching them? I wasn't touching them. They're all getting away from them. They know they're in trouble. He had a right of a fair trial without interrogation by scourge. He had the right to full protection of Roman law when charged in provincial cities like in Philippi, for example. The right to appeal to Caesar and to be taken to Rome for trial, which is the rest of the book. The right to exclusion from crucifixion except by the order of the emperor. And the crazy emperor who was in power then didn't command Paul to be crucified. He was beheaded. He was handled as a citizen. Paul was a citizen of Rome, possessing those rights as a citizen. And all through the book, you think about the times where he could have stood up and banged on the door and said, hey, just a moment, I'm a citizen. You, don't, you can't do that. But you know what struck me? His humble, gentle, submissive way in which he responded Verse 33, Paul silently submitted to the unlawful unrest and binding with chains. In 16 verse 22, Paul had submitted to Philippians beating him with rods, even though he had the right to Roman legal protection. And I quite frankly believe he, was, he took it because if he didn't, Silas, Silas would have been beaten on his own. 21 verse 37, he had humbly sought permission from the commander to speak. He could have demanded it. He was a citizen. He had a higher-ranking citizenship than Claudius Lysias. He could have demanded it. In 23 and 24, he submitted to preparation for horrific torture. He spoke respectfully to centurions and the commander. He asks about legality rather than demanding the point that he's a citizen. He used his citizenship rights for his benefit and for theirs. What would have happened to those soldiers, that centurion and that commander, if it got known all the way back in Rome that somebody had scourged a Roman citizen without trial? Never mind the trial, that they had just scourged a Roman citizen. Those soldiers, that centurion, that commander could have been executed for it. So his using his rights was for his benefit and theirs too. He was protecting them as much as he protected himself. Paul understood for 30 years his call to suffer for Christ. 
At his conversion in Acts 9, the Lord told Ananias he would show Paul the extent of his sufferings for Christ's name. In Acts 20, verses 22 to 24, sorry, the Lord promised Paul chains and afflictions in every city. Paul knew full well the terrible, terrible, painful sufferings were his. Yet as one who walked before the Lord with a perfectly good and clear conscience, he could not act against Scripture. Scripture, by the way, that he just finished writing in the book of Romans. Romans 13, verse 7, speaking in context of governing authorities, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The Apostle Peter likewise said it in his first letter, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Verses that we quickly forget when things aren't going so well with our governments. 1 Peter 3.17, he wrote this, For it's better, if God should will it, so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. So Paul humbly, respectfully submitted to his corrupt, ungodly, brutally cruel ruling authorities, knowing full well that suffering as a Christian is not against the will of God. I've actually had Christians tell me, it is not God's will for me to suffer. Uh, Well, then cut your New Testament off and throw most of it away. Because that's the overwhelming message. Not all of it, but that's a good chunk of it. Philippians 1, verses 27 to 29, Paul again, writing in prison, said this, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And verse 28 says, In no way alarmed by your opponents. Isn't that Paul? I mean, here he is in the middle of all this chaos, and everybody's trying to get mad at him, and they want to stone him, the Romans are chaining him and getting ready to flog him, and he's not remotely alarmed or fearful. He's doing exactly what he wrote. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And this is what he said. For to you it has been granted, given, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And brothers and sisters, I'm sure most of you know this. All over the world, this day, this month, these years, more people now are suffering for their faith than ever before in the history of the church. And it isn't just because there's more people on the planet. It's still more people. Paul responded to governing authorities on the basis of conscience and and Scripture, which demanded his and our respect for authority, our submission to authority, our prayer for and our obedience to our governing authorities until, there is a caveat, we all know it, until obedience to the governing authorities becomes disobedience to God. And then Scripture calls us to joyfully submit to the suffering they inflict for our obedience to God, not them. Scripture calls not only Paul, but us also to respond to governing authorities. And that was Paul's great example. But there is, of course, one far greater. 
The infinitely greater example in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3 is our Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame and sat down the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, although Christ, speaking of him, was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having made made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus' death on the cross, his own death, his own suffering was an injustice against him. He had no sin. He had done nothing wrong, nothing to be charged. Even Pontius Pilate, who was not exactly an upstanding figure in Roman history, said, I don't find anything wrong with him. There's nothing, no reason to crucify him. And they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He set the greatest example of suffering unjustly at the hands of cruel governments. But God, in tremendous grace and love and mercy, used his death as the penalty payment for all our sin that we might have forgiveness and salvation and freedom. So our first relationship to God is with a clear conscience and our relationship to governing authorities is in humble submission. And thirdly, we relate to unbelievers with grace and truth and boldness. As you get into chapter 23, you note the circumstances. The Romans have released Paul in verse 30. No doubt he stayed close to them for his safety. Probably released him from his chains, simply that. Romans have called the Jews to come and hear Paul's defense. They came to the barracks, not in the Sanhedrin usual place. The Romans want to understand why this humble, respectful Roman Jew seems to be the instigator of all these enraged bloodlust. Paul has not been charged with a crime against Roman law, and Paul does not, note this, for a moment, submit to the Sanhedrin council. They no longer have authority over them, and we can see that in just a sec. Council's made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. If you want some information, I can give it to you later. But basically, the Sadducees don't believe the resurrection, angels, and spirits, and the Pharisees are... uh, They're like tradies that are devoted to Scripture. The Sadducees are very much the educated ruling class. The Pharisees know their Bibles like nothing else. But they're working men. Paul was a tent maker, a leather worker, basically. Uh, They're considered to be the most accurate in interpreting Scripture. Uh, Sadly, they added some 600-plus helper laws to the law of the Old Testament. The Pharisees held to to traditional interpretation and application of the Old Testament law. And even though Jesus is always seen disputing back and forth with them, in fact, they're the ones that warn Jesus of danger from Herod. They invite Jesus into their homes. The Pharisees are drawn to Jesus, and some do believe in him, like Paul, but generally they're opposed to the church and some protect it. Now, notice Paul's address to the Jewish council. What he's actually saying is quite striking. His address of brothers does two things, really important. It defines him and them as equals in Paul's eyes. It's a polite but respectful refusal of their authority. They don't sit in judgment over him. And he said, when he says brothers, he's making that clear. Uh, some of the other, with, same with the early apostles. The council no longer had authority over them. Remember Acts 4? 
Peter and John, early in the days of the church, they're before the council, and they, they tell them, hey, we told you to stop preaching about Jesus and stop preaching in Jesus' name. You want to bring his death on us. I mean, they had said, Bill it be on us when he was crucified. What do they say? Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God, first, to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, regardless of what you say and you do, we are going to keep preaching Christ. And they did. And what they were doing was saying, you don't have any more authority over us because we have the Messiah, we have the King, we have Jesus. The council has no more authority. The early apostles recognized that the council, having rejected Jesus as God's Messiah, were in effect apostate to faith and hope of Israel. And so they would not obey the council's commands to stop preaching. Notice Paul demonstrates his love for these lost, unbelieving, unrepentant Jewish countrymen. He calls them brothers, which they were. Remember what he's already written to the Romans in chapter 9? I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's standing there saying, brothers, I have a clear conscience, which, by the way, is a huge message and we'll see in a sec. Brothers, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. He was declaring the gospel. He used that opportunity in that meeting as they all came together to find out why he was causing all the problems to reach out in love and grace to these men who were standing there hating him for what he was doing and saying. Paul knows their hatred for Jesus and the other apostles, and the disciples. He knows what Ananias is like. Ananias was renowned for his brutality, his greed, his uh, using bribery to get power. Uh, We'll see in a sec, but eventually he was hunted down and killed by uh, Jewish Nasalus freedom fighters right before the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. They found him in his house and killed him and burned his house to the ground. Notice, Paul's claim to a good conscience was his careful way of saying, my God-given conscience no longer accuses and condemns me. If it's not judging and condemning me, neither is God. Paul has peace with God for his conscience is clear. They certainly cannot judge and condemn him, and that enrages the council. How dare he? So the high priest Ananias orders one near to Paul to strike him on the mouth in violation of the law. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. It's exactly what he does. Orders him to be struck. He claims to sit in judgment of Paul's actions in regards to the law, and he breaks the very law he is claiming to uphold. No doubt there's more than just Paul who is shocked by what he does. He hasn't been charged or tried or found guilty for any crime, and yet he's given an offensive blow, hit in the face, basically. I would think, basically, an open-handed slap across the face. Paul's shock at being so unjustly treated in response to his love and grace for them results in a very strongly worded rebuke to the speaker, who, unbeknownst to him, is the high priest. And that phrase... 
God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. We kind of smile because it's sort of a comical in a way. But you don't understand, just ex- we don't understand exactly what the extent of those words is. Paul's words of a whitewashed wall is a highly descriptive phrase of hypocrisy. Literally, he's saying, God's going to stripe you, you hypocrite. That's kind of a harsh word, isn't it? You know what Jesus said? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Paul is pronouncing God's judgment on Ananias as an utter hypocrite, and ten years later, the Jewish nationalist freedom fighters found him, burned his house to the ground, and killed him because he was so strongly pro-Roman and so corrupt. But you know, Paul's rebuke's not unchecked. Those standing by Paul rebuke him for the evil spoken of the high priest. And Paul's response is very interesting. He says, I didn't know he was the high priest. Now, a lot of commentators will say, oh, but hang on a second now. Uh, He would have been standing there in all those priestly robes with the ephod and the, the staff and the crown and the mitre and all that stuff would have been on him. Actually, quite unlikely. The high priest put all those robes on when they went to minister into the temple. They took them off when they came out. He's been drawn to the barracks, this Roman place. More than likely, they're wearing their civvies, their ordinary street clothes. And so Paul would not have recognized him as Ananias by the robes. So he says, I simply didn't know he was the high priest. But there's something else here. One commentator made the good point. I think it's very accurate. Paul is making a very subtle point. Ananias' command does not reflect the behavior expected of God's high priest. What he's basically saying is, I didn't recognize you and you're not behaving like him anyway. But, but, he says, I live with an entirely good conscience. What's he immediately do? As one who recognizes his error in accordance with one who keeps his conscience clear, he immediately admits his mistake, even citing Scripture as evidence against himself. And just as Paul relates respectfully to the Romans who are in authority over him, so also, in obedience to Scripture, Paul still respects the role of the high priest, even though he no longer sees himself under that authority. And from gracious to a moment of indignation, back to gracious again, even though at a disadvantage, Paul regains his composure, deals with his mistake, neither downplaying nor dismissing it as unreasonable, and then he moves on. And brothers, there's a, there's a lesson for that in us in that for us. You do something wrong? What's our, our usual reaction? Well, you know, it was an awkward moment. Uh, the guy hit me. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, I, no, well, you know, I mean, it, the guy backed into me, okay? I mean, he deserved a punch in the head. Uh, well, you know, uh, well, the government makes too much money. What's a few thousand bucks in my taxes? No big deal. Do we do that? We do, don't we? We're always justifying and somehow finding a way to excuse our actions. Paul doesn't do that. I didn't know who he was, but he admits right away, you're not supposed to speak evil of the rule of your people. He cites scripture against himself. He deals with his mistake and then he quickly moves on. The Romans want to know the reason for the chaos and riots, so Paul seizes the moment to boldly state the reason. Paul, I can almost see him rearing up and raising his hand and saying, Brothers, I 
am a Pharisee. And we go, hang on a second. We all think of Pharisees as horrible people, don't we? We even write books about how to not be a Pharisee. And here's Paul, this great man of God, this faithful missionary, this one who has suffered so much for Christ, and yet he declares in front of Romans and Jews alike, I am a Pharisee. But he's a Pharisee in every positive sense in the word. In fact, I would argue he's more, more Pharisee than all the rest of them put together. A Pharisee is one who is devoted to the law of God, the word of God. He is one who is a strict interpreter of the law of God. He now truly understands the law. Everybody sitting in that room, all these lawyers, all these Pharisees, all these Sadducees, the high priests, all of them, they have an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament. And Paul is standing there. He's saying, I'm a Pharisee. And in fact, he's saying, I get it more than all of you because I understand the scriptures. You know why I understand them? Because they all point to Jesus. And he's still devoted to the law of God. He's still a strict and accurate interpreter of the law of God. He understands the law more than all of them. He has carefully and rigorously applied the law, having come to faith in Christ as God's Messiah and prophet and priest and king. Paul is the truest Pharisee standing there. He's still a devoted Jew. He is on trial, as he says, for the hope and resurrection from the dead. It's interesting. The Sadducees rejected and disbelieved the resurrection, while his own sect of the Pharisees believed in the concept of resurrection. But he, Paul, standing there, the truest Pharisee of all, believed in the reality of the resurrection. He had the greatest confidence and assurance of it. Why? Well, you all know the answer. On his way to Damascus, light shining out of heaven, he saw the risen, glorified Lord. We have reason to believe as his time was spent in Arabia learning the, the truth of God, that God appeared to him and revealed things to him. It was his qualification and testimony as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had seen the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. What hope did Paul have for his own resurrection to eternal life? His faith in Jesus, his seeing of Jesus. What hope did Paul have that he'd be declared righteous in the judgment when we all stand before God? His hope was this. He had seen and he was still trusting in Jesus. What confidence did he have that he's already declared righteous in God's sight? His faith in Jesus had resulted in a cleansed conscience before God. It no longer accused him and judged him for his sin. Paul has peace with God through Jesus Christ. He has the hope and the resurrection of the dead. He knows it for a certainty. So this is great. We've been talking for a long time. What do we do with all this? I mean, it's great. It's a great story. But this is the Word of God. It isn't just a historical story. It's got a point and an application. It's got a lesson for us, instruction for us. And my first question as I read all of that and go through it all is, what is your hope of eternal life? Paul's hope of the resurrection of the dead, his hope of eternal life, was that he had seen Jesus and he was trusting in Jesus. Paul's good conscience before God was because God had cleansed his conscience and so he had a hope of eternal life. He knew he would be found, or sorry, declared righteous in God's sight on that great judgment day. What's yours? I've told the story before, I'll, I'll tell it again. 
uh, many, 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 many years ago working as a young carpenter's apprentice on a job site. And my boss was part carpenter, part evangelist, um, talking to our boss, a general contractor. And Randy's dad had died very suddenly, and my boss, John, was standing there. And I walked by as these two guys were going at it at the, on the edge of our job site. And all I heard John say, but Randy, how do you know you'll see your dad again? What is your hope? And Randy just said, I, 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 he was getting mad at John because he didn't want to hear the message. He said, I, I just know it. I just know it. And John said, but that's not hope. That's just wishful thinking. Or worse to that effect. I never forgot that. What's your hope of eternal life? Paul standing here in the midst of all this chaos, about all that's going on. They're wanting to kill him. The Romans want to scourge him and all this stuff going on. And he's as calm, as patient, and as gentle as can be, making that statement, I have a hope of the resurrection of the dead. And his hope was in Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't have Christ, you have no hope of life beyond this life. You have no hope. And no peace. If you're trusting in good works, there'll never be enough for God. If it's good works outweighing the bad, listen, one single bad deed committed when you were tiny deserves your eternal death, and you cannot outweigh that with all the good works in the world. But if you, like Paul, are trusting in Christ as your hope of eternal life, then you will have peace with God. Your conscience will be cleansed. You'll be in a relationship with God such that, like Paul, in the midst of all that mess and chaos, calm and unalarmed as he was. To recap it, Paul first relates to God with a clear conscience. Brother, Sister in Christ, do you have a clear conscience before God? My friend who may not know Christ, do you have a clear conscience before God? If you do, you will have peace. I've been talking for some weeks with a friend who has no peace whatsoever, wrestles in a near torment, his mind just raging against him in his words. And I looked at him and I thought, you don't have peace with God because your conscience won't shut up. And it won't shut up because it's still guilty before God. It's only through Christ's blood that your conscience can be clear and you can have peace within. Secondly, Paul relates to the Rome and the Romans with a humble submission. How are we relating to our governments around us? I hear lots about petitions and conspiracy theories and all sorts of stuff, and I kind of groan inside when I hear it. You know what the Bible tells me? It says to pray for the kings and those in authority, that we may lead a a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Before we start signing petitions and getting up and jumping up and down and doing all kinds of crazy things, our first call is to prayer and repentance. Lastly, Paul relates to his Jewish brothers with grace and truth and boldness. Do you and I have a lost, a love for the lost and unbelieving family members that compels us to respond in love with the truth? 
He didn't back off on the truth for a moment. In fact, he said some very inflammatory things to them that were true. But he communicated that truth. He reached out in love, in grace, and truth with boldness. May God help us, brothers and sisters, to do the same. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table quickly. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray together? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, for our Savior, the one who had no sin of his own, yet it was willing to be made sin for us, to take our sin on himself, to suffer the full weight of your anger and your wrath against us, to take it, to be willing, as he said in his prayer, to be forsaken by you, that we might be reconciled. Father, we give thanks that it's not with the blood of bulls and goats, not through a fiery burning offering outside this building, but it's through the precious blood of Christ shed for us that cleanses our conscience. Father, we give thanks for the peace we have to lay down at night and close our eyes, knowing for a certainty if we die in our sleep, we will wake in heaven knowing for a certainty that whatever happens to us, we are safe in the arms of Jesus. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for your goodness to us, your grace to us. Father, we thank you, we thank you for those who are here this morning that don't know Jesus. Father, we pray that you would awaken thoughts and questions and concerns. Father, we pray that you draw them to yourself. You would put plant in them the desire to both, sorry, the desire to think, to do, to act, to respond in faith. Father, we ask you for your help for them. But Father, most of all, we would thank you for the Lord Jesus and the life we have in him. And we give thanks in his precious name. Amen.